In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. They are amazing words. They're words that are normally heard in a carol by candlelight service. It's normally the final reading. If you listen to the service from King's College, Cambridge, it's always the last reading. And there's always added poignancy as the darkness is getting darker outside. And yet, this passage is read, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it. I did think, actually, for one moment this week, of just allowing us to sit with this reading, of not preaching a sermon. Don't worry, I have got one. But actually, those words are so beautiful and so powerful and so theologically dense and rich it's quite intimidating for a preacher to try and preach on them. Because John has encapsulated so much in just a few words. But to even think about preaching on them, well, you can't improve on them. They contain references to thousands of years of Hebrew theology, Greek philosophy, and span the beginning of time right up to today and beyond into the future. And they're full of clues as to who Jesus is. I'm going to pick out three of them very quickly. And it begins with those first three words. In the beginning. In the beginning. John begins his account of the life of Jesus in a different way to Matthew and Mark and Luke. Matthew and Luke start with genealogies, family histories, who do you think you are episodes in the life of Jesus. Mark tells us, bang, that this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John begins in an entirely different way. It's a poem, this prologue. And he begins with an account of the start of time itself. In the beginning. 
He's not just referencing the start of his gospel or the start of his biography of the life of Jesus. He's making reference to the start of everything, the beginning of the beginning. Gemma at the nine o'clock told us when she was preaching that one commentator that she read actually misses out the word the. And a more accurate perhaps translation is to simply read these words in beginning. In beginning was the word. And what John is doing is saying that the life that is being introduced here isn't just of local significance. It's not just for the people of Palestine. It's not just for the people of Judea. It's not just for the people of Israel. This is of some, so significant that it is for eternity. And to signal that, he goes right to the beginning of before time itself. In beginning, in the beginning. This life is eternal. This life is universal. This life explains history itself. Jesus, John is saying, doesn't come into being when Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus has always existed. Jesus was there before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And John is deliberately referencing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. It's deliberate repetition. It's a deliberate referencing of the Hebrew understanding of the beginning of creation itself. What John is saying is that Jesus isn't simply born of Mary and Joseph, but Jesus was there at the beginning of all things. And having established that, he then does something even more remarkable. Because he says, in the beginning was the Word. And again, in, in two or three words, John does something extraordinary. He, he links two of the three great cultures of the known world in just three or four words. Just with that phrase, was the word. He links Jewish Hebrew thinking and he links Greek philosophical thought. In that one phrase, he brings together the Jewish idea of creation and Greek philosophy. In the Genesis creation account, when God speaks, that's when things come into being. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light, let there be, let there be, let there be. When God speaks, that's his creative act. In the beginning was the word, the spoken word of God. The universe, the stars, the planets, and the earth itself come into being when God speaks. And God's word is divine and eternal, authoritative and creative. But he's also doing something incredibly clever at the same time. Because in Greek philosophy, the word, the logos, was something else. 
Some Greek philosophers referred to the word, the logos, as the omnipresent wisdom by which all things are steered. Or the rationale, the reason behind everything. Philo, the Greek philosopher, he thought that the word stood for the perfect person or perfection. So do you see again what John is doing? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the one through whom all things were made. In the beginning was the one, the Hebrew word, the one when God spoke, the creative act of God, and in Greek thought, the one who is perfection, the one who is the, the omnipresent wisdom behind all things, the one who is the rationale behind all things. In the beginning was the word. And he continues, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is both the reason behind everything and the one, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, through whom all things are created. Or as the carol puts it, lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. So the one that we worship is the one who is before all things, the one who is the reason for all things, the one who is the basis of all things, the one who is the rationale for all things, and he is the one through whom all things were made. Everything owes its existence to the person of Jesus. And John has done that in English in six words. In the beginning was the word. In those six English words, he's got thousands upon thousands of years, indeed eternal truths, summed up in six words. In the beginning was the word. But then thirdly and finally, he goes even further as he takes us through his prologue. And he reaches its climax in verse 14, where he says this. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. He is not simply the one through whom all things were made. He's not simply the rationale behind everything. He's not simply the reason behind everything. He's not simply the spoken word of God, the logos of creation through whom all things came and come into being. But now, the one who is eternal has entered into time and space and the word has become flesh. Not only is Jesus part of the Godhead itself, now he has become a human being. And again, the words trip off the tongue, often in carol services. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message version has it, literally, he moved into the neighbourhood. 
He tented with us, is the, the Greek word. He tabernacled, he camped, he pitched his tent amongst us. It's not a helpful analogy for me. I hate camping. So the idea of God camping, not helpful. But God moving into my neighbourhood, seeing the things that I see, seeing the people that I see, feeling what I feel, smelling the air that I smell, walking the streets where I walk, that's a much more helpful picture. And that's what John is saying. God, Jesus, isn't distant and remote. He's not simply eternal, but he's entered into time and space itself. And he's moved into the neighbourhood. He's entered into creation. The creator has become part of the creation. As Max Licardo describes it, holiness entering into a womb. The divine becoming a fetus. The majesty being found in the mundane and a manger. All these descriptions are just reflections of what John is putting across. That God, the one who is eternal, is now fully human. And we see that all through the life of Jesus. So we see Jesus getting tired. And we see Jesus getting hungry. And we see Jesus getting sad. And we see Jesus getting angry. We see Jesus feeling grief itself. The shortest verse in the Bible where Jesus weeps at the graveside of Lazarus. Even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's about to resuscitate Lazarus, he feels the grief. He knows what it is to be a human being. He's, he's felt what we feel. He stood where we stand. This is no sort of Superman figure out of the Fantastic Four. The real guardian of the galaxy bleeds when you cut him because he's fully human. He's not immortal in that sense, but the divine has become human. He's become flesh and blood and he weeps when he's bereaved and yet he retains his divinity. Because even though he's tired and hungry and sad and fed up and bereaved, he forgives sin. He commands creation and creation obeys. He commands the winds and the waves as if he was speaking to a small child or a puppy. Get down. Be quiet. And creation itself obeys him. And seven times in John's Gospel, he'll use that shorthand name of God, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. All deliberate pointers to the fact that Jesus was not just a good man. He's not just a good religious teacher. In what C.S. Lewis called that dilemma of the trilemma, he is either mad, bad, or God. And he retains his divinity while being fully human. 
He's there at the beginning of time, but he's now revealed in time itself. He's human like us, and yet he's tempted in every way. We're told he's able to sympathize with every weakness, but he never gives in to temptation. He is like us, but he is unlike us. He's human, and he is divine. Now, in the early church, there were all sorts of ideas and theories as people tried to get their head round this idea. How could God be up there in Jesus and then in here at the same time? It's quite a complicated thing if you think about it. How could God, the eternal God, be in eternity? How could God be fully present in the person of Jesus? who said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And then how could God live in every single person who believed in Jesus? Because that is also the promise of the New Testament. That the spirit of Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in us, lives in us who believe. And how do you get your head around those ideas that God is up there in Jesus and in me, and in you, all at the same time, even though he's outside time. Discuss. And there are all sorts of different theories, with all sorts of strange names. Ebionism, the idea that Jesus was a human, but divinely appointed, but after all was said and done, he was just a bloke. Then there was something called deceitism, the idea that Jesus only seemed human, but he wasn't really. He took on the appearance of being human, but really all the time he was God. Then there was this idea called Gnosticism, where it had the idea of the divine Christ uniting himself with the human Jesus just for a limited or defined period of time, possibly the three years from the baptism of Jesus to just before the crucifixion, and just before the crucifixion, the divine part, the Christ, leaves and it's just a human being that's crucified on the cross. Now in some ways, you look at all those and you think, well, you can understand why they come to that conclusion because they're trying to get their head around something that we cannot fully understand. How is God up there in Jesus, in me, in you, all at the same time? And he's outside time. We don't know. On one hand, it's a mystery. There was even a group of people who followed a guy called Arius, one of the early church fathers, and he said, well, there must have come a time when Jesus was created by God. There was a, a time when Jesus was not. That's what people who are Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians today believe. There was a time when Jesus was not. Well, against all these, after about two or three hundred years, the early church fathers concluded these words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. And each word and phrase means something. Most of it actually comes from this prologue to John's gospel begotten not made of one being with the father light from light true God from true God begotten not made 
There has never been a time when Jesus didn't exist because Jesus pre-exists time. And each word and phrase was debated over, contested and nuanced over a hundred years. And it all comes down to a mystery that is a paradox. That we have a God who is divinely human. And it's unique to the Christian faith. And it means that because God has become a human being, he is able to sympathise and empathise with everything that you and I go through in life. So you and I never feel a situation that Jesus has not felt. Jesus has felt every emotion that you and I feel because he lived a fully human life. He did the most human thing possible. He died because we're mortal. But then he did the most divine thing possible by coming back to life again. When Jesus was on the cross, there was a sense in which God dies. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now again, we can't get our heads around that. How does God die? He can't. But somehow on the cross, there's a division between the Father and the Son. The Trinity itself is split by your sin and mine. And it's only because Jesus is God that he's sinless, and only because he's sinless can he die in your place and mine. So there's nothing that Jesus hasn't felt, and there's nothing that God can't forgive. Nothing that we can ever do is so bad that Jesus can't or won't forgive us. Some of us live for years with guilt for things. Things that we've said and things that we've done. And we just cannot believe that God wants to or is able to forgive us. And so we live with this guilt. We live with this guilt. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. That God loves you. That God is for you. That God is able to and God wants to forgive you. And he is able, whether it's for the first time, the tenth time, the hundredth time or the thousandth time. If you open that door, then he will come in. And he makes all the difference. It was this truth that gripped me 39 years ago when I became a Christian. 39 years ago, when I was 17, I realised that this person, Jesus, was God become a human being. If he wasn't, then he wasn't worth following. If he wasn't God become a human being, then he is just a good religious teacher. He's a good moralist. But if he is God become a human being, then it makes all the difference in this world 
and it makes all the difference in the next. Let's stand and pray together. Let's just be quiet. And these are big, huge, eternal theological truths. And on one level, it's, it's easy just to dismiss them and think, well, what difference does it make to my life? But the reality is, it does make all the difference. Because if Jesus was just a human being, then he couldn't have died on the cross in your place and mine. Because he wouldn't have been sinless. And if he wasn't fully human then we do have a God who is distant and remote and a God who is unable to relate to us or for us to relate to him because he doesn't know what we've gone through. And yet in the person of Jesus, we have a God who has lived a fully human life and who yet is divine. And God himself knows what we feel, has felt what we feel. Father, for those of us this morning who are tempted to think that you are so far away, that you are unable to sympathise with what we're going through this morning, help us to hear afresh that you lived a fully human life, that you get your hands and your feet dirty in this world. And those of us who think that because you're God, then somehow you're unable or unwilling to enter into the darkness and the muck and the emptiness sometimes of our lives. And that you're unwilling to forgive us. Then help us to see this morning that because of your love, you want to forgive us. And you're able to forgive us. And because of who Jesus is, you can and will forgive us this morning. So again, we're asking you, Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to come and to work amongst us as we respond now. To open ourselves up to you and to your working in our lives. Holy Spirit, please come and work in us now. In Jesus' name.